like uh, Trey said, my name is Dave Muett. I'm the student pastor here at LifePoint. Uh, been here about a year and a half now. Um, and just excited to, to be here with y'all this morning. Um, and so with that, if you guys have a Bible, go ahead and flip to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, we at Student Ministry have been in the book of James this semester, uh, just kind of working our way through, just paragraph by paragraph. Um, and, uh, and James is, is kind of interesting. So James doesn't really follow your typical uh, kind of structure for a, a, an epistle or a letter. Right? We look at a lot of the epistles that Paul writes or even John uh, or Peter you look at them and they almost follow this kind of just linear pattern. With James, it's almost like he just kind of jumps around to different topics all over the place. Um, and that's not by accident, it's intentional. Um, some people actually refer to James as, as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Because uh, when you look at James, what James does is James has written his letter uh, in the same kind of style as the Proverbs was. James draws a lot from the book of Proverbs, especially Proverbs uh, chapters 1 through 9. Uh, and then he also draws from Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And so what you see in James is almost uh, wisdom through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, wisdom through the eyes of Jesus to a New Testament uh, community. And so we are in James chapter 5 this morning. I'd like to read it, and then we'll pray, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in from there. So James chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says this. James, James says, Come now, you rich... Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I I thank you for this uh, this word this morning. I ask that uh, as we look at uh, your word to us, written uh, by the author James through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for your glory and the good of your church, God, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would bring to mind uh, things in our own lives that, that you would desire us to tweak and to change in order to find greater joy, greater life in our relationship with you. I ask that you would use this time that you would look awesome in it. And if you guys are willing, uh, just ask you to to pray for yourself. It's something I I call our students to do every single Sunday. Just pray for yourself as you are uh, hearing God's word. Uh, Pray that God would teach you something this morning. And then if you could pray for me, pray that, uh, that what I say would be helpful, would be clear, uh, would ultimately make God look awesome. Well, Father, we love you and uh, we trust you. Uh, please use this time. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
Well, when I was a, a college student at Oklahoma State University, uh, my second year, I moved off campus and decided that I wanted to live in an apartment complex with three other guys in ROTC. And, uh, and you can probably only imagine the number of stories that came from that year of just four ROTC Army guys living in one apartment. Um, but we remember one of the first things that happened that year was just immediately after we got issued all of our equipment uh, for that year, and one of the guys in our apartment was going through his duffel bag that he had gotten, we call it an A-bag, uh, that he had gotten, and, uh, and he found a pair of underwear in this A-bag which then just inevitably turned into just prank after prank after prank after prank in our apartment of just like hiding it in each other's pillow. Like one dude had it hung in his shower one morning. But I remember uh, one of our roommates, name was Evan, and he was kind of a scrawny kid, decided that he was going to prank another one of our roommates named Adam. And, uh, and what he did was he decided, Adam was a big workout fiend. And so Evan decided he was going to take this underwear and he was going to stick it in Adam's protein powder in the kitchen. Like he wasn't going to, and he wasn't just going to like put it on top. Like he was going to dig a hole in that protein powder and just bury this underwear in there. Right. And so Adam comes home from working out one day and he's like scooping out protein to his drink when he finds this just nasty pair of underwear in there and just is livid, like he is just absolutely ticked, and Adam is just, or Evan is just like rolling on the floor laughing at this whole thing, right? And the rest of us thought it was pretty funny as well. At that point, some of the pranks began to stop, slow down, but as the rest of us, myself, and another one of our roommates named Blake, we're just like, man, we don't want this to stop, like this is just too entertaining. And so we decide, like, we we're going to kind of like egg Adam on and be like, dude, you got to get him back, man, like you got to do something. And he's like, oh, I don't know, maybe like I should take the high road and like, you know, just let this go. We're like, dude, forget the high road, man, come on. And, uh, and so we ended up convincing him to go into Evan's room and just kind of like saran wrap and, pay, and, and throw toilet paper all over his room and whatnot. And he, he goes into the, the bathroom. We told him, like, dude, like, you got to go to the toilet and, like, saran wrap the toilet, right? And uh, he's like, I don't know, man. Like, that kind of seems mean. Like, no, 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 it'll be great. Don't worry about it. And we're like, and, and he did such a terrible job at saran wrapping the toilet. Like, you walk in there, you put the lights on, like, you clearly know there's saran wrap on the toilet. And so we're like, this is kind of lame, but whatever. Evan was kind of an odd guy. And so he comes home one day walks into his room, and doesn't flip on the light. Decides that he needs to go to the restroom, and doesn't flip on the bathroom light. Just decides he's going to go to the restroom in the dark. He sits down to go to the restroom, and just the next thing that we hear is just this like pitching scream come from his bedroom, as we all like realized Evan found the saran wrap. That's exactly what happened there, right? And uh, again, like we were just rolling. It was the funniest thing in the world. Um, but I tell you guys that story that, for this reason. Nobody likes being surprised by something you don't see coming when it leads to some sort of like misery or discomfort, right? Like nobody enjoys being surprised by that. Uh, when you just didn't see it coming. We were in New Orleans, like Trey and Logan had, had said this last week, and Apparently, like we're going on, a, on a, a trip one of the mornings to go serve one of the areas in New Orleans, and apparently you can't park within 20 feet of an intersection, which I didn't know. Um, and so I get surprised by a parking ticket on our van. And I'm like, this is not turning out well. Um, 
And so it's like nobody enjoys being surprised by something you don't see coming that leads to misery, right? And as we're reading this text here in James chapter 5, James is talking about the wealthy. He's talking about the rich. And one of the predominant themes you see throughout all of Scripture when it brings up the wealthy is this almost warning of God saying, hey, you don't understand. There is judgment coming. There is repercussions coming for how you are living your life right now. And he speaks to them in such a way of saying, there's something coming that you don't see coming. And we'll read these passages sometimes and kind of just like gloss over them. But when you look at global statistics on, uh, on, on wealth and on money in this world, like if you live in the United States, like you are in, you're in one of the richest countries in the world. And you fall under this, under this umbrella of what God would call the wealthy. Like if you live in America, the odds are you can safely, every single time you see the word the wealthy in scripture, you can just put your name in there. Because globally, when it comes to this idea of wealth and money, that's who we are. We are the wealthy. And what James is doing this morning is, is warning us of what is coming down the road. Of what is coming down the road if we use our wealth in a certain way. Because none of us want to be caught off guard by something we didn't see coming when Christ comes back or when we stand before the Father in the last day. One of the questions that comes to mind a lot is almost like, you know, how much wealth is too much? And that's a question I want to tackle this morning. But if we're going to tackle that question, the first thing we have to recognize is that far too often we are blind to our own greed we are blind to our own greed. This is kind of what you see in James with this strong imperatival language in James 5 verse 4. When he's, when he's saying to them, he's like, behold, look, pay attention, get your eyes fixed on what I am about to say. He's like, behold. James is trying to draw the attention of the rich to something. Because they're either not seeing it or they're seeing it and they just don't care. And James is saying, look. Pay attention. Don't miss this. It's important. Because we can so easily become blind to our own greed. And James is saying to us, hey, look, pay attention to this. This is important. When I uh, worked for Campus Crusade, um, at a, uh, um, I had a student at SMU who uh, every single uh, time I would like text him, he just never texted me back. And I would just get so frustrated by this until I talked to one of his friends one day, and his friend told me, he's like, he's like, dude, you need to just like every once in a while just text him the word bump, like B-U-M-P, like bump. Just text him the word bump. I was like, what? Like, what, what are you talking about? He's like, trust me. He's like, you need to text him the word bump because he just sees messages and he just forgets about them. But if you text him the word bump, then he'll see it. I was like, I was like. This sounds really weird, but okay, I'll try it. And sure enough, like I texted this kid, and then I hadn't heard back from him in like a week. I texted the word bump, and he responds to me in like two minutes. I was like, all right. But I bring that up because that's what James is doing here. 
Like he, he's giving this almost text message, this nudge, this reminder of like, hey, you need to look at this. You need to pay attention because you are far too often blind to your own greed. I remember when I first thought, really thought about this, challenged about this, I was at a college conference called Passion back in 2015. And a pastor uh, by the name of Francis Chan got up and he was talking about uh, visiting other Christian churches uh, in, uh, in third world countries. And at some point, he was describing, uh, you know, houses and homes and lifestyles over in America. And he got him the idea of, you know, what most people like, you know, live in a house and then uh, they've got a garage. And, and the people just kind of stopped like, what do you, like, what do you mean garage? Like, what's a, what's a garage? And, and, uh, and he started to explain it to them. He's like, well, you know, it's just like someplace you put your car like inside so it doesn't get uh, rained on or hailed on or anything like that. And they're just like, like a house? And he's like, I mean, kind of. They're like, you all have houses for your cars? And I was just like, he, he said, he's like, I never thought about it like that. Because it's just so common for us. And we can so easily become blind to our own greed. And the reason we can, we, can, we can be so easily blinded to our own greed is because we're too, too focused on our own financial bracket. We're too focused on our own financial bracket. If I stutter a little this morning, I'm sorry. Like I said, got back from New Orleans. It's been a long week. I'm not quite recovered yet. Um, but look at James chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, right? This is, if you look at the Greek of it, the structure of this is very unique because what James does in this structure is he's almost like firing these like short staccato sentences. They're even not even complete sentences. All right, we look at it in James 5 verse 2 and it says, Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you. They'll eat your flesh like fire. Like these just short staccato sentences, and James is writing it this way because he wants to draw attention to it. He wants to draw your eyes to it. He's trying to draw attention to the very thing that the rich are typically captivated by. Right? My money, my stuff, where I live, what I possess. He's trying to draw attention to what it is that the rich are captivated by. And again, like I said, we will read texts like this and grasp it intellectually, like yes, like we shouldn't be uh, spending all of our money on possessions and wealth and whatnot. Like we should be uh, doing what God says we should be doing with our money. Like we'll gloss over it and we'll read it because we've grown up and we've been you know, inoculated with so much just like Christian Bible and whatnot growing up that it just seems like it's white noise. It doesn't make any sense to us. It doesn't really affect us at all. But I heard a pastor say about it one time. He was saying, the reason that greed is so easily invisible to us is because we don't ever compare ourselves to the rest of the world. We only compare ourselves to our immediate financial bracket. All right? We'll look at our neighbors across the street with a car that costs ten dollars to $15,000 more than our car, but here we are owning a truck that costs $75,000, and we'd be like, but I'm fine. Like, I'm in, like my financial bracket, like, I'm actually living pretty conservatively because he has a car that's like $100,000, right? And we'll be living in a house that costs seven hundred and fifty dollars but because our neighbor across the street lives in a house that's $1.2 million, we're like, I'm doing pretty good. Like, we only compare ourselves to our immediate financial bracket instead of the rest of the world. And just like that, Greed can slip in so easily without even 
being noticed. And James is saying, look, behold, pay attention. It's important what I am saying. I understand that costs of living are different in different areas, obviously, throughout the world. But but this morning, I'd really want to challenge you all with this question of when it comes to spending your money, do you make those decisions based largely off of just what everyone else is doing in your immediate financial area? Do you just look to your immediate geographical location in making decisions on your wealth? Because this idea is just ingrained into our culture, right? We only compare ourselves with the people that we see immediately around us. We never compare ourselves to what the rest of the world experiences. And, and that's why when you go on mission trips to like Haiti or places like that, where it's like you're forced to do that. And some of y'all who have been to Haiti, you know what I'm talking about, but you're forced to all of a sudden realize, like, I don't live in the real world. And you're forced to all of a sudden compare yourself with the rest of the world instead of just your immediate culture. I remember for me, when I was a junior in high school, uh, I went to Acuna, Mexico, which was incredibly, incredibly impoverished. It was the first time I'd ever seen people actually just living in cardboard boxes on the street. And I walked away from that experience just like dumbfounded. This idea of like, we in America, just we live in this bubble. Like, we don't live in the real world. We're just surrounded in this bubble when all the rest of the world lives in a completely different story, a completely different lifestyle. And we can so easily become blinded to greed. Greed so easily can slip in there and masquerade itself as this is normal, this is common, this is fine, everybody else does this, everybody else is buying this, everybody else is spending this much money on cars or this much money on houses or, or this much money on entertainment or this much money on vacations. Like Everybody else is doing it, it's not really a big deal and greed just slips in unnoticed. And we can become so blinded to it. And so the question comes, well, how do you, how do you dislodge that? Like, how do, you, how do you dislodge something that's invisible? And the Puritans had an interesting phrase. They said, uh, they said this. They asked the question, how do you dislodge a beautiful thing? How do you dislodge a beautiful thing? Because, I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest, like materialism, things that we have available to purchase to us, like there's beauty there. Like there is beauty in the things that we can purchase and that we can buy. There's nothing wrong with the fact that that's beautiful. But the question comes, how do you dislodge a beautiful thing? The Puritan said this, you can only, repla- you can only dislodge a beautiful thing by replacing it with a more beautiful thing. That's the only way you can do it. I've said this to, to students before, but it's like um, in, uh, in the play, Romeo and Juliet, right? In the beginning of the play, Romeo is just in love with this, this one girl, right? Who knows what her name is? Anybody? Yeah, it's okay. Rosalyn, right? The play opens up, and Romeo is just infatuated with this girl named Rosalyn, Right? He can't stop talking about her. He's going to this party to see her. Right? And so he goes to this party with his friends, and all of a sudden, he meets Juliet. And from that point on, you never see Rosalind's name in the play ever, ever again. Right? Instead, you just see Romeo like, sneaking around outside and, and coming up to her window and reciting poetry to her. Right? Why? 
because he'd found something that was far more beautiful than what he was originally captivated by. You only replace a beautiful thing. You only dislodge a beautiful thing by replacing it with a more beautiful thing. So what does that look like when it comes to greed? You, you displace greed by looking at the greedlessness of the gospel. By looking at the greedlessness of the gospel. You see, this, you see this theme all throughout James's letters, right? Like I told you before, James is kind of like a, it, pardon my illustration, but it's kind of like a shotgun, right? Like you shoot off a shotgun, it's made, it has a shell, there's a whole bunch of BBs in it, it's just like a massive spray. As opposed to like a letter that follows a very linear pattern. But what you see in James is there's predominant overarching themes. And one of the themes that you see in James is this, this mindset of constantly looking at your world through a gospel lens. Through a gospel lens. You see this before the text that we're in today. You see this in the text that we're in today. And you see this after the text that we're in today. Before, in the text, the, before the text we're in today, you see in James 4, verse 15, where he's talking about making plans and prioritizing your, your life and your desires. He says in verse 15 of chapter 4 of James, is instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Right? You should have in your mind this idea that God runs the world, that he runs society, that he runs things that go on. And make your plans, yes, but he's saying, but keep in mind that there is something bigger going on here, that there is someone who is in charge of things, and that ultimately you will be held accountable at the end. You see this, this theme after the text we're in, in verse 7 of chapter 5. James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He's trying to get them to see there is more in front of you. There's more that meets the eye than what is just immediately in front of you right now. You see a whole bunch of things in front of you right now. He's like, there is so much more to that. And that's the theme he's driving at in verse 4. He's saying, recognize that there are eternal consequences to how you spend your money Today, he says in verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Another way you can translate that is actually the ears of the Lord of armies. There is something coming, and you need to live today in light of what's coming, is what he says. And so the way you dislodge greed is you have to replace it with a more beautiful thing. You have to replace it with the greedlessness of the gospel. And that means having a mindset that there is more in life than just what you see right now. Right? There's more than what meets the eye. Which, ironically, is a pretty popular movie, TV show plot, right? Like, whether it's watching Stranger Things and understand that there, like, there's this upside-down world that like, you don't see, right? Or watching the movie Star Wars, there's such a thing as the Force and the Jedi and the Sith and all these things that you don't recognize that, that isn't just immediately in front of you. Or maybe it's the movie The Matrix, right? How many of y'all remember that movie? Oh, good, more of you than students. I asked that question to students one time, and they are just like, what? 
I was like, oh, y'all are breaking my heart. Uh, right? There's more than what you see in front of you, whether it's Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or, uh, or, Star, or, Harry, or Wonder Woman even. You know, it, it, this theme of there's more going on than what you see is so prevalent in our TV shows, so prevalent in our movies. And I would argue that the reason that plot line speaks so deeply to our soul is that there's a level of truth there that resonates with us inside. That there's something about these made-up stories that speaks of a true story. That there is more than what you see before you. The way you dislodge greed is you focus on the greedlessness of the gospel the gospel which says that, that you are not just a body of chemicals created by chance, but you were created for a purpose, that there's a point to your life, that God has gifted you with things. He's given you passions and talents and experiences. He's placed people in your lives. He's given you things that other people look at and be like, I just can't believe that you are good at that. Like, it makes me sick how easy math comes to you right now. Like, I just have to spend hours and hours and hours studying, but you just get it, like, overnight, and it makes me really frustrated. But you have things that you are good at that other people aren't as good at. And that's not by accident, it's on purpose. It's because God has made you and gifted you and wired you to be a part of a global story that he is working in this world. You read the Gospels and it's all about the kingdom. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. Do you want to be a part of the kingdom? God is calling you to be a part of the kingdom. Are you kingdom citizens? There's all this kingdom language because there is a kingdom that is advancing in the world and it is happening one person at a time through one changed heart after another changed heart after another changed heart after another changed heart. And it is a massive, unstoppable purpose that God is enacting for his glory. And he's calling you to be a part of it. He's made you to be a part of it. There's something that you don't see and you dislodge greed. You dislodge the idea of just spending money on whatever I want to spend money on, whatever makes me feel warm and fuzzy at the time and excited. Like You dislodge that by focusing on the fact that there is something bigger and better going on. And I don't want to miss it. It's a global thing. And to enact it, to make it happen, God didn't just give a tenth. He gave everything. He gave everything. Because it was worth it. It was better. And we can become blinded to our own greed. We can have this mindset of like, you know, I live in West Plano, which means that I need to have a house that's at least $450,000. Or I live in West Plano or Frisco, so it's just like I, I can't be driving a Honda. Like nobody drives a Honda, right? Uh, we bought a Honda. I'm really excited. Josie loves it. Um, or my kid goes to school in Plano or Frisco, right? So it's just like... That iPhone XS comes out, like, they've got to have that because if they don't have that, then, man, heaven forbid, like, they're not going to be that popular and the kids are going to hate them. Their whole life's going to fall apart. Like, it's like they've got to have this thing, right? Or, here, don't email me on this one. My kid has to be a part of a soccer league or, or, or a private sports league. I was reading an article earlier saying that on average, people will spend five to $10,000 a year on club sports. And that's, that's equipment, that's fees, that's travel. Five to $10,000 a year 
D1 uh, or NCAA came out with a survey saying that 6.5% of high school seniors will play D1 football, 5.7% will play D1 soccer, and 3.5% will play D1 basketball. But we'll drop five, ten thousand dollars That means that maybe they'll be in that like five, six percent. But we won't drop a tenth of that for them to go on a mission trip that could change their life eternally. And what I challenge you all to say, I'm, I'm not against sports. Like, I hope to have kids one day and then play sports and whatnot. And, and, and I understand that we want them to be a part of that thing. There's, there's benefit in being a part of that. But what I want you all to do is that if you look at your ex- expense account, if you look at your monthly expense account, what story would that monthly expense account say you have bought into? Which story have you bought into? And I can sit up here and like not talk about some of those like very touchy subjects, right? Because some of y'all are probably really angry at me right now. That's okay. Um, But if I'm actually trying to be a good pastor, then it's not going to be loving of me to just ignore that stuff. Right? Like if you stand at the end of your life before Christ and all of a sudden he's saying all this stuff like holding you accountable, which he will hold us accountable for every single dollar that we spend, I don't want your response to be, well, nobody told me that. Right? Like, I would not be loving you well to just let things like that go. Because there is something better, right? Like, my aim in that is not to, like, cast shame, like shame, make you feel terrible at yourself. It's not my aim. My aim is that there is a bigger, better something going on. Like, a better something going on in this world. And as C.S. Lewis gave the illustration of a lot of times, like, we're just, like, content making mud pies because we have no idea there's such a, such a thing as a vacation at the beach. Greed so easily slips in. We're, we're blind to it a lot of times because we tend to just look at everything around us and compare ourselves to everybody around us. But the solution to that is not just like try harder. The solution of that is to fix our eyes on something different, right? Like we're looking at everybody around us and what their financial brackets are at, and then we're looking at ours. Instead, James would say, no, 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 no. I want you to look at the greedlessness of the gospel and then look at your, look at your finances and then look at your budget and then look at what God has given you to steward well, the solution is, is a reorienting of our eyes. This is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm always wanting students to go on trips to like New Orleans or I'm wanting students to go to summer camp because something happens there where students have their eyes opened to something they did not see before. I had students going down to New Orleans, coming back to me at the end of the trip, being like, Dan, like, I, I want to do this in Plano. Like, I had no idea this was going on. Like, I want to I wanna carry some of this over to Plano. Like, we had students that went out and did evangelism for probably one of the first times in their life, and they come back, and I had a student come up to me and say, dude, like, Dan, like, when you go do that, like, I want to do that with you. Like, let me know when you're going to go. And it was like one week, 499 bucks. And all of a sudden, this student's whole mindset about how they should spend their time, where their commitment is at, what God is doing in the world has been completely altered, completely reoriented. That's why I, mean, I, want, I want students to go on stuff like that with us because you will become whatever it is you behold. You'll become whatever it is 
that you behold. Whatever it is you look at, whatever it is you fix yourself on, whatever it is that captivates your mind, your thoughts, that's what you will become. You will become whatever you behold. Look to the greedlessness of the gospel. What does that look like practically? It looks like having a wartime mindset with your wealth. Having a wartime mindset with your wealth. I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, we can get kind of caught up on this question of like, well, how much wealth is too much? Like, what's the number? Like, what's that sweet spot? But the thing is, when you look at James's text here, James doesn't talk numbers. Like, he's not talking numbers. In fact, James doesn't even condemn these people for having wealth. Instead, what you see is that James condemns them for what they do with it. James 5, verses 3 through 6, he says to them, he's like, You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Nowhere in there does James say, because you have money, there's judgment coming for you. He doesn't say that. He says, because of how you've used your money, you're fattening yourself for the day of slaughter. All right, he gets onto them. He brings up this idea of, of treating their money like treasure, of cheating other people in order to get more, for, for increasing their own pleasure, just more and more and more. What will make me feel better and better and better? What can I buy next? And so the, the solution is not numbers. The solution is to reorient how we think about using our wealth. And one of the most helpful things I heard in college was a pastor say that when it comes to your wealth, you want to have a wartime mindset. And I'll explain that here in a second, but I want to talk, talk, tackle this issue of tithing really quick because nowhere in the New Testament, this, this might come as a surprise to some of you guys, it came as a shock to me when I, first, when I first heard it. But nowhere in the New Testament will you see anything talking about tithing. You won't find tithing in the New Testament. It's not in there. It's in the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament at all. What you see instead, and I'm not against tithing. In fact, I think tithing is a good thing. And Josie and I tithe every single month. But we do it primarily not because there's a command in the New Testament to do it. There's not. We do it because it's an easy starting point to remind myself. Every single month, it's like a heart check of me reminding myself of this is not ours. This was given to us by God, and therefore we need to use it in the way that he calls us to use it. And so I'm giving away a tenth back to the church in order to remind my heart that it's not mine at all. And that God can do far more with 90% than I can do with 100. And so I'm always for tithing. And even starting next Sunday, we're going to have tithing available for students. Because it's something I've wanted to do for a while, and now we can implement it. Um, but tithing is, is a starting concept. It's a fantastic starting concept. If you're not tithing, I totally encourage you to tithe. Not just because of just giving money because ultimately it's better for your own joy and your own heart and your own relationship with God. It's a starting point, but when you look at the gospel, it wasn't that Jesus hung on the cross and he gave a tenth of his life. He gave every single thing. He gave it all. And so when it comes to spending our wealth, 
I want to encourage us to have a wartime mindset. This is what I mean by that. When you think about the concept of war, real, real war, war is expensive. War costs a lot of money. You've got to buy tanks, uniforms, weapons, ammunition, food, housing. You've got to have money for R&R so soldiers can actually take a break and rest and, and, and just kind of relax and take a step back from all the fighting. It's expensive. It costs money. And being a part of the kingdom, you are a part of an advancing war against the, against the enemy that seeks to steal and kill and destroy. And that costs money. And so when it comes to spending our money, it's not that like you have to have a certain percentage or a certain number that you stick with, or it's not even like we just need to sell all of our possessions and go be uh, just hermits living on the street, right? That's not even what is advocated here. It's this mindset of like you need to change how you think about using your wealth. You need to change the framework that you're operating in. And the most helpful framework that I've found is to think about it in terms of war, that when you come to spending Money, and this is, our, this is our goal. I'm not saying I hit this perfectly every single month. This is what I'm always trying to think of, is that when you're spending money, ask yourself, is this helpful for the advancement of the kingdom in some way? And sometimes vacations are helpful for the advancement of the kingdom because you need to take a break, you need to get away, you need to spend some quality family time with one another. It's not a bad thing. Sometimes it's, it's helpful for people to buy a house that has four bedrooms instead of three when you've only got one or two kids, right? Because your mindset is like, I want to use this for other people. I want to use this to house other people. That's a kingdom thinking mindset. And so it's not about having a specific number. It's about, it's about thinking of your money differently. What kind of war advancement can you make with the money that God has given you. And when we think this way, when this is our mindset about things, the beautiful thing is that we avoid wasting our wealth and our lives. We avoid wasting our wealth and our lives. James says in 5, 2 through 3, your riches have rotted, your garments are mothy, and your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. I heard another pastor say one time, they basically said, you know, everything, everything you own will eventually end up in one of two places, either a landfill or a garage sale. Like everything you own will eventually either land in, in a landfill, under the ground, buried, smashed up, or sold to somebody else. Like everything. And it's like, that's exactly what James is saying here in 5, 2 through 3. There will come a time when it doesn't matter, like, doesn't matter what money you had. It doesn't matter what style of clothing that you wore. And so James is, is advancing this idea of don't waste your wealth and your life. We live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And I had a student over New Year's when we spent, uh, Haiti, uh, spent New Year's in Haiti. A student was asking me after seeing all of what was going on there, they said to me, like, it almost makes me, like, feel like, like, why in the world do I live in the United States? You know, something they didn't have any control over. Thinking to themselves, like, why in the world does God have me living in the United States? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, when we have, when there's kids out here on the street playing soccer barefooted, who surprisingly play soccer better barefooted than we could ever play with shoes on. Awesome. Um, 
But they're saying, why? Like they were bothered by it. And I said to them, I was like, man, Acts 17, 26 to 27, says, and he, speaking about God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He says, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so that, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. The reason you live where you live is what I told them. The reason you live where you live is so that you would seek and find God and that you would help others to seek and find him as well. Like God has determined that you would live in the United States with all of the, the blessings that come with that, of all the stuff that comes with that, all the money that comes with that, naturally all the privilege that comes with that, and not that you would just spend it on your own pleasures, on your own passions, on your own enjoyment, but that you would spend it for the advancement of the kingdom that you would use it for the advancement of the kingdom. God has blessed us with money, but not to be spent on self-indulgence and excitement and joy and happiness, but for a purpose bigger than ourselves. Josie and I know a couple live in Dallas. Um, to this day, I don't know exactly how much money they make. They make a ton of money. The, the wife works for HBK. Um, and... Uh, uh, and so we've had conversations with them about money, but, but one of the things that's been so cool to see is that they live in Dallas, and they live in a much, much smaller house than what they could afford. Um, but one of the things they decided to do, because uh, the husband works at the seminary that I went to, and one of the things they had noticed with seminary students is that once they graduate seminary, they're all poor. Um, you know, unless you're married, and then if your wife makes money, which thankfully I lucked out on that one, um, but most of them, when they graduate and they're single, they're poor, and they can't afford to live anywhere in Dallas. But if their job is in Dallas, they inevitably don't really get paid enough to have their own apartment, right? And so what this, this, uh, this couple decided to do was like, hey, we've got money. We've got the resources. We've got the ability to do this. They just bought a second house, just paid for a second house outright. And they just rent it out at an incredibly cheap price to single seminary students that are just getting out, that are trying to get their footing and figure out where they're going to go next. Like, that's using your money with a wartime mindset. And just, like, think about that. Like, there's something inside of us that resonates with us. Like, that is so cool. That with, with what you've been given, you can change somebody's life so easily. And, and that's what I'm encouraging us to this morning, that greed can, can so easily just slip under the radar and be something that we don't even see because we're too fixed on what we see around us. But instead, James encourages us, look to the greedlessness of the gospel. It's not about a number. It's about spending your money with a wartime mindset, asking yourself, how can I use what God has given me right now to advance the kingdom in my area and globally after that? And that's what I want for y'all because every single one of us was made for a purpose, to be a part of a far bigger story than just what we see in front of us. And so let's go ahead and pray, and, uh, and then we'll continue in worship by taking up our tithes and our offerings. Father, um, I thank you for this time, Lord, and, um, and I just ask, you know every single heart, every single mind in this room. You know every single person's situation, uh, financially, specifically. 
And so God, I just ask that you would do what only you can do, that, uh, that depending on the situation that you're in, that, that each person in here is in, Lord, um, I just ask that, um, that you would speak to people individually where they're at, that, that if they need to be convicted about how they're spending their money, Father, that your spirit would lovingly bring that conviction. But Lord, if they're in a different situation than that, then I ask, Lord, that this message this morning would just be one of comfort, that you have called them to a purpose, that your purpose is unstoppable, unstoppable. And no matter how uh, significant or insignificant that they feel, that you have called them to be a part of that because you have gifted them, you've wired them, you've blessed them with resources. Some people you give uh, one might, some people you give five, and some people you give ten. You do it for your own reasons, for your own purposes. All you ask of us is to just be faithful with what you've given us, God. So I ask that you would use the preaching of your word this morning for your glory and the good of your church, uniquely speaking to your people. Father, we love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.